Yeah, there another one right before bed here. I just got done listening to a, a recording, a very good recording of Danzig's first ever show, the band Danzig's first show in 1988. So I let the curtains down. Talking about Danzig, I got to lower the curtain. I guess this this is just a show where <laughs> every episode I either talk about Danzig or Hitler now, which actually connects because I believe Danzig was the first town invaded by Nazi Germany and Poland, which is probably why Glenn Danzig named himself that, although it never really comes up. But he, he's always been that kind of guy, you know, because, I mean, of course, Danzig's probably interested in the Third Reich. He's never used it in his music. It really has no place. But, of course, he'd be a guy who would make a reference like that. There's even an old video interview from way back when where they're in his house and he's like showing off his band book collection. He's always been that type of guy. That's why nobody should ever be surprised at anything he says or does, especially in today's climate. But anyway, I already covered that enough. But listening to this this first show, I was blown away by it. I'd never actually heard it. And the recording was perfect. It was just rugged enough. It's exactly what I was talking about in the other episode about these days, when it comes to especially some of my favorite bands of all time, how it's really preferable just to hear a decent live recording, you know, a recording where you can hear the instruments, you can hear everything. But I mean, at that time, you're going to get good live recordings. I mean, that's one of the unfortunate things about modernity is like, yeah, there are issues to digital recording with studio albums now, like it's not preferable. It's the reality, but it's not preferable. But live recordings really, you know, I can only enjoy them. I can only truly appreciate them if they kind of have an analog sound, you know, because the the recording technology at that point, 1988, for just somebody recording a live show, you know, is going to be limited, but it just makes it sound that much more atmospheric. It's funny that sometimes clarity actually decreases the um, the essence of it sometimes. It kind of sucks it out. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's no different than like being in a, in a room that's too bright. Like sometimes being in a bright room actually brings you down. Definitely takes away the atmosphere. But what's interesting is the set, like for the, given it was the first Danzig set in 1988... And they play a bunch of the songs from the first Danzig album, of course. And I, I'm sure that that album was either, I don't know if it was already recorded at this point, but it was, they definitely had all those songs done. And what's interesting, though, is they open with a Samhain song, and not just any Samhain song, but the song that's named Samhain. The song Samhain by the band Samhain. And so, a very interesting decision. As a fanboy, I don't know. I, don't, I would never call myself a fanboy about stuff, but obviously I am. I would call myself a fanboy of this stuff. I got to admit, I'm just a fanboy. But uh, you know, uh, a fanboy who steps on a dog toy. You ever heard about the fanboy who stepped on the dog toy? But just as a fan and everything, it's such an interesting decision to me. Considering that like they already had all this material ready, like the, the Danzig one songs they play sound phenomenal. But yet he decided to open the very first Danzig show with the song Samhain by his former band Samhain, which is just very interesting to me. Kind of says something, you know, because if you look at the Misfits, 
transitioning into Samhain, you know, because these are none of these are the same band, but it's like there's obviously continuity, and it, it seems like Danzig wanted to emphasize that. And then the third song is a Samhain song too, which it's he plays a Danzig song second, and then he plays a Samhain song. Kind of the whole recording, the whole show, it's about an hour long, and it alternates between Danzig one songs and uh, misfits and samhain and it sounds cool you know all of it sounds cool i mean i mean more than cool it's really it's really phenomenal to hear and there's a part on it where because apparently because i i've heard people talk about this show before there's a lot of people who are still around obviously who went to this show and it was a pivotal event i mean it was a historical event you know for people who are fans of this stuff and I've heard the story before, though, how like some of the people there were Misfits fans who really weren't that interested in his new stuff. Like they were there to hear Misfits songs. And obviously he gave them that. But some of those people just weren't interested and, you know, they, they were giving him a hard time. And at one point on the recording I was listening to, there's somebody in the crowd chanting boring. Like he had just played a Danzig one song and somebody's chanting boring, you know, doing that chant. And it's amazing because the very next song, right after that person's chanting, is you just hear the opening riff to Mother. And to think that that was the first time a live audience ever heard Mother. That was, the album wasn't recorded. The album wasn't out. At the very least, Danzig 1 had not been released. So the public had never heard Mother. And it wouldn't become popular for years anyway. You know, Mother didn't become a hit until years after it was released. It, was, it wasn't until they released a... Uh, there's a live version of Mother or something on, I think it's Black Acid Devil or one of those, and kind of a bonus track even. That's that's when Mother became a hit. So it, not only was Mother had not only had Mother never been heard by the public, by a live audience, not only had Danzig never played a live show before this, but it's like even after this, Mother didn't become a famous song like it is now. But this guy's chanting boring. And then you just hear the opening riff to Mother, and they nail it. It sounds like the performance is identical to the album. It's incredible to hear. It's what I was talking about when I talked about watching these videos of, of the Danzig Misfits reunion in 2016, where I was amazed that even after all these years, even after age and you know some changes to his voice, because he had his, his vocal cords were damaged at some point. But even with these changes and even with age and everything and not playing with the Misfits for 30 years, it's like he gets all of the little details, all of the little, the little nuances are still there. And that's what I noticed with this mother performance where it was just like, wow, it's like it sounds it's raw and live, which makes it amazing. But other than that, like all of the details, everything in the song is identical to the recording. The solo is identical note for note. And what's amazing too, you can hear the crowd just go silent. Like you feel this tension, like someone's chanting boring, people are talking, people are talking amongst themselves. And then you just, you know, even though the song is playing and you wouldn't be able to, it's not like I'm in the room with everyone, you can feel it. You can just psychically feel the room go dead silent as Danzig plays Mother for the very first time in front of a live audience. Just that moment in time, is that must have been absolutely insane. And then some of the other Danzig One songs on it, on this recording, 
are a little different. Like Mother is identical, uh, it, but some of the other songs, it's like they're they're a little. They sound a little more like Samhain. It sounds almost like Samhain playing Danzig One songs, which is really cool. Like his vocals and everything. Somebody else pointed out how his vocals are. He does more of those guttural vocals that he was doing in Samhain. Whereas on the Danzig One album, on the actual studio recordings, he kind of smooths out his vocals a little bit. So these early record, this early performance, you can hear where a couple of the songs are, are much more raw and guttural. And then it closes out with Not of This World. And that, just like Mother, it's like every single moment, every detail is perfect. Like you can tell... You can tell they, they chose to close with that song for a reason because they play a couple, they play a Samhain song and then a Misfits song and then they close it out with Not of This World and it just sounds perfect. It sounds like the album, but again, like Mother, it's like every little nuance is there, but it's it's raw and live, so it's it's amazing. But just had to share that. You know, and then it's funny, too, because after I did those Misfits episodes, uh, my friend Nick G emailed me. He's a bit older. I don't, I don't know exactly how old he is, but I, I want to say a good bit older, like a generation older than I am, I think. And uh, anyway, so he, he went through like punk and and all that stuff like much earlier on. Um, but he, he mentioned he, he heard the episode about the Misfits or one of the, one of the episodes about the Misfits. And he mentioned that. Uh, when he was in college, like he, he went to a show and randomly met a guy who he ended up like partying and hanging out with. And the guy turned out to be Erie Vaughn's cousin, the bass player from Samhain and Danzig, Erie Vaughn. And so they, they, he said they went back to this guy's house and were just like hanging out, listening to music. And he called Erie. <laughs> he said this guy, this Erie Vaughn's cousin called Erie on the phone. And just and like handed the phone over to my friend, and he had no idea what to say. It's like, what do you say? Like you're just on the phone with your Yvonne. But you know, it's funny because you know, it's like when you talk to people about the Misfits and Samhain and Danzig and just that whole group, that that whole just that group. Uh, you know, either either people like relate because they went through that phase, or they're still going through it. It's a recur like or with, like with me, it's a recurring phase. Like every couple of years, you have to revisit it and go through it and remind yourself, you know, what that was. Uh, you know, if it's not that, like somebody has a personal story. It's amazing how many people actually do. Like when I first got the internet way back when, way back when, but this is probably like 1999, 2000, you know, when I first started like interacting with people online who I didn't know and things like that. I got in touch with this guy. He was kind of, he, he was quite a bit older. Like he was probably about seven probably my sister's age around there, maybe a little bit older. And then he had his own Danzig story where he was from the East Coast and he had a friend who was from Lodi and they took him to Danzig's mother's house because this guy knew Dan. I might have told this story in the other episode, but it was like they took him to Danzig's mother's house and met her. And then it, she had all these misfit skateboards in her basement or, you know, in storage at her house. Like by this time, Danzig was already playing in the band Danzig. So he had just left this stock of old misfit skateboards. And so the guy that I talked to got to take one. And I remember he sent me a picture and it was kind of an ordeal. Because, you know, at that point, it's like you had to either have a digital camera or you had to scan a photo. 
And so it was a little bit of an ordeal, but he sent me a picture of his, his misfit skateboard to confirm the story. And I've actually heard the same story from other people online. I've seen that story and I believe it in every case. Like what's so interesting about those guys is they remain so accessible. Like there's a lot of stories about people like just who lived in the area who weren't necessarily their good friends, but those guys would just hang out with them. And it doesn't, it, it never sounds sick either. It never sounds like perverse where it was like they wanted to surround themselves with fans in some kind of sycophantic way. I think they were just guys who really liked what they were doing. And so if you liked what they were doing, they were just, they just saw you as people to hang out with, people to talk to. I know like there's many stories about Jerry and Doyle doing that. There's stories about Yuri Vaughn. Not very many stories about Danzig which is unsurprising. It's not surprising at all that you don't really hear stories about Danzig being as accessible to fans and making friends with his fans. It's not surprising at all. But it's a cool thing I like about them because I don't, I don't normally like like fan band interactions. Like it's really, I don't know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's not even anybody's fault. Like unless somebody's truly sick about it, it's not even anybody's fault. It's just kind of the dynamic between... A creator and his fans you know on that level um but like you do it, there is always this really one-sided this one-way street aspect of it but when you hear stories so it's not like I'm, I'm hearing this and i'm like oh it's so cool like i couldn't care less if they were dicks to their fans i would still like them just as much and sometimes i'll hear a story about a band where that person's a dick and, and it, it doesn't take anything away sometimes it even adds to a person because i'm like at least they're committed to who they are which you don't always find. But yeah, I do like that a lot of people do have their own personal stories related to those guys, especially earlier on. So what's some, a few other random things I saw today that <laughs> I just couldn't resist. These are just, this is the same stuff that people, that people talk about online. This is the, just the, the same stuff that you see headlines about, but Sometimes I just have to comment on current events. Sometimes I have to be current. I saw the thing about the Nirvana Nevermind Baby suing Nirvana. <laughs> I laughed out loud. I was in kind of a dark mood this morning. I just, I don't know, I'm just feeling... I, I was just in a dark mood this morning. And I saw this this headline about the Nirvana Baby from Nevermind suing nirvana for sexual exploit exploitation like that's the actual word sexual that, that's the actual phrase sexual exploitation i'm just like that's so perfect especially because you know i don't i respect nirvana i never went through a nirvana phase myself but my sister did some of my closest friends did i enjoyed nirvana as a kid like being a kid in seattle when grunge was at its peak and having an older sister who was going to those shows like my sister would go to nirvana shows uh, she would see all those bands. Uh, so being a kid at that time, it was it, honestly, it was really cool. Like even though grunge wasn't my thing, experiencing grunge vicariously when I was like seven years old, eight years old was actually really cool. Because I would say my sister was probably into that stuff by about 92. I think she was probably in around eighth grade or so. So I, I think she was going to shows and you know that's when her room started to be decorated with posters i mean she got really into metallica and uh she I, i'll never forget like she had this ride the lightning poster on the wall of her room and i didn't know like i knew metallica and by then the black album was out and that's what i liked 
you know, I was just a little kid and that's what you heard. Like you heard the black album. I, I still have no beef at the black album. I'm not somebody who really like, obviously it's not the earlier albums, but I have no major beef. I can still find enjoyment in it. Whereas like, I can't, I just can't with load. Like that was disappointing. Like I bought load right when it came out on CD and it was just a big disappointment because I was young and still getting into music and it just, I just knew I couldn't find any value in it. Couldn't find any value in it. But I, I just remember looking at my sister's Ride the Lightning poster because I, I don't even think it said Metallica on it. And it wasn't a big poster. It wasn't like one of the big, she had these big band posters, but it, it was a smaller poster and it was just the electric chair with the lightning. And I just remember looking at that. And you know, at that point, like I probably knew what an electric chair was, but it's still not something that you really think about. And the fact that it's like floating in some sort of cosmic space with lightning all around it, electricity, it was just... It's, you know, it's just like one of those early esoteric experiences where you're trying to wrap your brain around this visual. So I'll, And I still feel that way. When I see the cover of Ride the Lightning, I still kind of get just a little bit of that feeling. But yeah, and the, the Nirvana baby, it's like, that's a, it's an audiophile's dream. Nirvana Nevermind album cover is an audiophile's dream. It's a CD it's a, it's Nirvana's, you know, first big album. So it's well-produced. It's very sonically sound and it's, it, you know, it, it was released on CD for ultimate audiophile clarity. And then it has a naked baby on the cover. An audiophile's dream is Nirvana. Never mind. But it is kind of funny that the guy's, he's probably 30 by now, right? He must be 30 based on when that album came out. I wonder why he waited until age 30. You know, you figure all this stuff's been feeding into people's head. You know, how many people have basically retconned their own history? You know, how many people, and I mean, how many, how many people like fetishize the Nirvana? Like how many people, how many pedophiles, how many audiophiles take a perverse interest in the cover to Nirvana? Nevermind. I mean, at that point, anything could be, I mean, like, it's not that hard to find images of naked babies. I, I, I get it that it's kind of weird. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want a picture of myself naked, even as a baby. There's a photo of me somewhere that my mom took when I was really little, a baby pretty much, but I was walking and I was taking a piss in the yard of our cabin and my mom just took a picture from far away of it. She probably thought it was funny. And so that exists somewhere. I don't know. I probably wouldn't care if somebody saw it. I, I might though. You know, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about that unless it happened. So it is kind of weird, the idea of allow, because I mean, really the issue is his parents though. I don't understand why it's the beef is with Nirvana. I mean, I do. You follow the money. You know, he, he wants, he's suing Nirvana because they can give him a lot of money, even if they just settle with him. But really the issue would seem to be his parents who allowed him to do it and so, you know other people have already made the joke that it's like the baby is chasing a dollar bill the baby is being lured by a dollar bill on the cover and so it's like he's he's actually doing that now <laughs> he's actually seeking money but you know in our current climate it just it's perfect for that because it's like oh he just he just now at age 30 decided that he was sexually exploited by nirvana Kurt's not rolling in his grave. Kurt's sitting in his grave, like breathing a sigh of relief. Because I wonder about him. I wasn't a huge fan, but given how my sister was so into Kurt, Kirk, 
Kirk Corbrain, excuse me, his name's not Kirk. I'm from Seattle and I don't even know his real name. Kirk Corbrain. But Kirk Corbrain, you know, my sister was obsessed with him. Like she even carved into this park bench across the street from our house. Ju- uh, no, wait, no, that's wrong. It wasn't Kurt. It was Axel Rose. She carved like Julie plus Axel into a park bench. And at that point, I didn't know what plus means. I didn't, I knew love. Like I knew when people do it, did a heart, but plus I just thought it was strange, but, but yeah, I had a lot of, I've, I've had a lot of Kurt fan, Kirk fans around me. And you know, he was obviously an outspoken progressive. You know, he was a punk, you know, he was, he was into all that stuff. And at that time, you know, that was going against the grain, you know, in, as far as mainstream culture went. That was going against the grain to some degree, but I do wonder about him today. You know, because the bass player from Nirvana, Chris Novoselic, he—I feel like he was either a Trumpsfeld supporter, or he did, or maybe it was similar to Danzig, where he made comments that lended themselves to that. There was because he's a politician now too, which is funny, and he still lives in Washington. But there was something where he was either a Trumpsfeld supporter. Or just there was something where he maybe he just said something that was against, quote unquote, woke culture. You know, he said he did something. He said something. And it doesn't make you wonder about Kirk, Kirk Corbrain, because you would think that he'd just be, you know, mainstream society is, is promoting some of the values that he was promoting now. But he was a counterculture figure. He was a rebel. And, uh, you know, people, people who share Kirk's values don't necessarily share his approach. So, and and that seems to be a big dividing line is approach. I mean, it even goes back to the cliche about, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And the other cliche, I think it's, is it Maya Angelou? It's somebody that people like to quote. Who said, uh, it's not about, uh, people won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. But those are true. You know, those are very true. People will remember what you said sometimes, but it really does come back down to, you know, feeling. It's like if you're talking to somebody in a foreign language and you don't understand the language, their demeanor and tone are going to communicate something that language can't. And that's true even when you share a language. Because when someone is hostile to you or if they're preachy, if you pick up on a certain tone, that's going to distract you. It's like for me, it's like when you can tell someone's being dishonest, when you just know they're being dishonest, that distracts. That you, I respond to that on more of a, a feel level. And what they're saying doesn't even matter. They could be speaking the truth. But if I feel like they're coming from a dishonest place... That's what takes precedent in my mind, and it distracts me from even the intellectual component of what they're saying. But yeah, just I, I, I you know, it definitely it lightened me up to see that the, the Nirvana baby is suing Nirvana for sexual exploitation. Sometimes we just need a good lawsuit like that. And the other thing I saw, which I'm hesitant to even mention, but it's too good not to. And it's rel- I mentioned it in a recent episode. I like it when I mention a current event, like months after people stop talking about it. And then the next day it becomes relevant again. Because I mentioned how there was that rapper who 
as part of his performance some months ago, he, he had himself getting BF'd by the devil. And people were like, can you believe this blasphemous performance? Like, for me, it's just stupid. It's not even about blasphemy. It's not even about, like, telling him he can't do it. To me, it's just nothing I would want to celebrate. But then the controversy, too, was that he, he made some shoe, a satanic shoe that was blood-infused. Which I always go, like, how much blood? Like, a tiny drop of blood? Did you, like, how much blood did you put in that shoe and where? I could probably find out if I really wanted, but I'll just leave it at satanic blood shoe. But it's funny because I mentioned that, you know, and it, it, it was out of, it, nobody's talking about that. And then just today it came out that that guy, that rapper is upset because Tony Hawk now has a blood infused skateboard. And that's the phrase that was used, you know, just like I had to be very specific about the Nirvana baby suing Nirvana for sexual exploitation. The headline I read said that Tony Hawk is producing blood-infused skateboards. See, I just love it. I love the insanity. I do. I have to admit, like, as much as I've been angry lately on, on recent episodes, as much as I've been, you know, I don't know, just kind of ranting a bit about things that bother me, things I observe, it's like I, I have to admit some of this just mutant madness is just, I love it. And I don't even say that ironically. Like, just the idea that there's a rapper who became controversial for letting the devil BF him, and then he got, he, people were also upset about his satanic blood-infused shoe, and now he's upset because Tony Hawk isn't getting as much flack for his blood-infused skateboards. Like, we really are living in the end times. And there's a lot of fun to be had with that fact, you know? <laughs> And with Tony Hawk too, but I mean, it's the, the funny thing is, is, I like how that guy's upset, and it's like you're forgetting the fact that you, your shoe was a satanic. It was an explicitly satanic blood shoe that coincided with your performance where you had sex with the devil. Tony Hawk didn't do all that stuff. Like I could totally understand if Tony Hawk did a performance where he got ass fucked by the devil, which I, I would watch. Not if it was actually happening, but if Tony Hawk did some dramatized performance some theatric performance where he pretended to to have sex with the devil i'd watch that uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know i could if tony hawk did that and if it, if it was a satanic blood infused skateboard i think this rapper would have a little more credibility in being upset but it's like tony hawk doing a blood infused skateboard it's a little different because it's like there's also this blood sweat and tears aspect to it because the interesting thing about tony hawk because you know I knew who a few skateboarders were. You know, I've mentioned on here before that most of my good friends growing up were serious skateboarders. Like, it was a big part of their life, and I hung out around them. I was actually joking with one of those friends yesterday. He was re-watching Point Break, which is one of our favorite movies, but he sent me just a, a little video clip from his phone of... There's a scene where... Like, what's interesting is the, the surfer crew, like the crew of bank-robbing surfers, you know, Bodie and all them... They have this other friend who hangs out with them who doesn't surf. His name's Rosie, and he's this biker-looking guy who's really serious. He's a, he's like a really scary guy. He's just sort of their friend who doesn't surf, and he just kind of helps them out. And he sent me just this clip of that character, Rosie, where he like stabs a can of lighter fluid and then just like dumps it on a fire or throws it in the fire. And I, 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 my friend didn't say it, but like the second I saw that, I had this light bulb moment where I was like, oh, that was me. 
Like I was the guy who hung out with my at the skate park with my friends who skated and I was accepted. You know, I was like part of their crew, but I didn't skateboard. I just kind of like got into trouble with them. I'm like, I'm Rosie. I'm Rosie from uh, Point Break. <laughs> that, was, that was my role. Not nearly as tough, but that was me. But anyway, like that's the thing though, is like my friends, like I never really knew much about skateboarding, but I would hear names. Like when your friends are really deeply involved with that, you end up learning a lot just through osmosis more than the average person. But I just, I wasn't that interested in, in skateboarding. But the one thing is, is like, even though that was when Tony Hawk, that was around the time that Tony Hawk Pro Skater came out. It was around the time that skateboarding was becoming, you know, much more mainstream. It was in the X Games, um, you know, a little, a lot more little kids and people were doing it. But I have to say, like, none of my friends ever talk shit on Tony Hawk. Like, I never remember a single one of my friends. And they were always into the new up-and-coming skaters. Like, they always knew who the the new up-and-coming, lesser-known skateboarders were. And they were fans of those guys. Like, I remember one of my friends got really into Jason Dill back before nobody had heard of him. You know, it was one of those things where they were they paid attention. It was just like being into music or something. Where it's like sometimes you're, you know, it's not even about... It's not even about being into just obscure things or trying to be cool. There's just something really exciting about capturing something near its source. Like when something is new and exciting. And that's how my friends were about skateboarders. But they they always had a lot of respect for Tony Hawk. They never saw him. As, they, they always respect, you know, the work that he did. Because his whole thing was just skateboarding. I mean, even though he was marketing it, even though he was making video games... His entire thing was just, all I do is skateboard, and I'm really good at it. And people tend to respect that. Like when, you know, people do tend to resent people for selling out, and no doubt there were people who thought Tony Hawk sold out. He didn't sell out until he did that performance where the devil fucked him. Excuse me. That was when he sold out. But so, I don't know, it just, uh, it makes sense that Tony Hawk, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that we live in a world where there's rivalries over, like, blood-infused shoes and blood-infused skateboards. Like, was that going on in years past? And I know, like, I have a friend who released some records, and his band released a record, and with the the, the more limited edition copies, they the band members put a little bit of blood on them. Like they pricked their fingers or something and just dabbed blood on the record. You know, I've heard of things like that. But the idea of like making a, I don't know if these are mass produced, but making a a marketed product that is blood infused in some way. I don't know if people have been doing that for a long time. I don't know if that's brand new, but it does feel kind of like an end times thing where some satanic rapper is upset, you know, that Tony Hawk, Tony Hawk's blood infused skateboards aren't as controversial as his satanic blood-infused shoe, but just funny. You know, do, you know, this episode, it just wouldn't fit with the theme lately if I didn't mention Hitler, because I remembered a Hitler story, one of my earliest memories of Hitler. And my neighbor, he his family got a computer really early. He was my next-door neighbor. He was a year younger than I was, and he was super young, like four years old. I was probably five six years old at the oldest and his family his dad was this like blue collar his dad didn't even graduate from high school but he started his own contracting company and he was very intelligent you know 
That's why education doesn't dictate intelligence because a very smart guy ended up making a lot of money just through his, just being, again, just being a guy who works hard and is devoted to what he does. He's like the Tony Hawk of construction. He's like the Tony Hawk of uh, cement contractors. The Tony Hawk of cement contractors, blood-infused concrete. But anyway, the amazing thing is this guy didn't graduate high school and he was just, he ran a contracting business, but he bought a computer and he taught himself like he, and he bought a book and this is probably 1991 and he bought a book and he, and he, at that point there was no windows. He learned DOS and he bought games and he showed his kids how to play them. It was pretty amazing. You know, the things that a person can do if they just set themselves down and focus. I mean, I wish I could do that with more things. But they, one of the games they got was Wolfenstein, which if you're not familiar, I mean, I imagine most people have heard of Wolfenstein. It was one of the first really popular first-person shooters back before. I'd never heard of that phrase. It would be years before I ever heard the phrase first-person shooter. But Wolfenstein and, you know, you were, I think you're an American soldier and you're going through these castles and these laboratories and you're, you're fighting Nazis, but they've, they're slightly different, right? I'm trying to remember because the computer version, I think the computer version had swastikas. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the computer version, the original version, there were actual swastikas hanging on the wall. Well, they, they later released it for a console. And I think they changed the swastikas to eagles or there was something they changed where they made it less obvious. But it, to anybody, it would still be obvious that it's a, you know, you're, you're fighting Nazis. And uh, the bad guy, though, he, he's Hitler. Like, he looks just like Hitler. I, I don't remember if his name, I think it's Castle Wolfenstein. So I don't remember what the guy's name is. But either way, it's like you're basically going after Hitler. And it's pretty obvious. To us at the time, we had no idea, though. And, like, he, he, we, would, we would play that game. And I still remember the DOS screen. Because his dad even wrote down a series of instructions for how to start games. And, like, we were these two tiny kids by ourselves, like trying to get games to run on this old computer. And it's pretty amazing to think about that. And we were playing Wolfenstein though. And there was one time where this older kid was there. He was two or three years older than us. And uh, we were playing Wolfenstein and he goes, that's Hitler. Cause there's banners of the guy hanging on the walls. You end up fighting him, I think, but there's banners with his face on them. And the kid, the older kid who was visiting, he goes, yeah, that's Hitler. And I kind of knew, somehow I kind of knew who that was. You know, I was a fan of a lot of things. I was a fan of comic books. I paid a lot of attention. So I didn't really know the story, but I kind of knew that Hitler was the big bad guy. I knew that he was the modern day Lucifer. And when he said that, I, I remember kind of getting a chill down my spine. Like it was almost like, oh. Because that's, you know, that's a new concept to you as a kid too. That like something can... It's not a parody. I'm trying to think of what the phrase for that would be, what the word for that would be, where you have a character in a story who's, I guess, just based on, inspired by, but it's obvious in that game that it's supposed to be Hitler. But I wouldn't have known that. Like, in the game, his name isn't Hitler. You know, it's tweaked slightly. So as a kid, I'm not really thinking about that. So when this older kid goes, you know, that's Hitler. You know, that's Hitler. My mind was blown because it's like, oh, somebody can take something and, and creatively interpret it as something else while still representing that original thing. You know, I didn't, my brain didn't go there with it, but it introduced me to that concept. 
<laughs> but the funny part about it, and this just speaks to everything I've been talking about in recent episodes, is my friend went to his mom, like the, the little kid, the kid who was a year younger than me, whose game it was. He went to his mom and he, and he said, it's Hitler. This game, like, like he said something like that. He said, it's Hitler in this game. And his mom goes, what did you say? And he goes, it's Hitler. And she goes, if you say that name ever again, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And she was a really nice woman. She was a true, like, honestly, this woman, she's a sweetheart. And she, like her husband, it's like, I don't know if she graduated high school. These people were kind of, you know, I don't want to say ignorant. I don't think that's a fair word. If we can use that word fairly, like by its definition, I would consider her kind of ignorant of just, you know, just that sort of stuff. Like, I don't know that she even completely knew who Hitler was, but the fact, and like, and they're not, they weren't like hippies. They weren't liberals. I mean, that, that you didn't even really think in those terms at the time, but it was just the, the stigma of that name alone. Like the idea of your kid saying that. She was like, I'm going to, wa- if you say that name ever again, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And that kind of speaks to what I was saying, like the idea that you can't even, I mean, I'm not going to say she was a bad parent for saying that because yeah, it's, it wouldn't be socially acceptable. You can imagine like a parent's embarrassment and humiliation if your five-year-old kid is running around talking about Hitler. But still, it's like just the fact that it required that kind of harsh, and you know, this wasn't an abusive family. These weren't abusive people. So the fact that she threatened him with something that's quite abusive, washing your mouth out with soap, we need to clean your mouth with harsh, with chemicals if you say the name Hitler. You know, I feel like the right thing to do would be to like, if your kid says that, to maybe talk to them about it. Maybe have have a, you know, before you even talk to your kid about sex, before you even have the talk with your kid, have the the other talk, which is the talk about Hitler. Oh, Jimmy brought up Hitler. I didn't think we'd be having the talk this early, the other talk. But just that idea that you can't even talk about it. I mean, it's a good thing that that, my neighbor kid didn't say, did you know Hitler was an amazing artist? No, he wasn't. Because, you know, I'm not going to go into that again. I feel like I explored that topic enough over multiple episodes, over two episodes. But it was an experience early on, like, because I had heard, before I ever saw Hitler's art, this guy just won't shut up about Hitler's art. Hitler's art. You say Noah's Ark? No, I said Hitler's art. But, uh, that's one of those moments, though, where you question, like, it makes you more distrustful, because I, before I had ever seen Hitler's art, because it wasn't like, before the internet, it wasn't like you would just readily see it. Like, history books didn't include Hitler's paintings, like you would have had to have gone to the library or a bookstore and sought out a book that may or may not have included Hitler's art. Some highly, it would have been kind of a niche book if it included Hitler's art in it. So as a kid, you heard about Hitler's art. Like somehow, maybe in school, just through pop culture, I heard that Hitler was this failed artist. And I, and I heard that his art sucked. And then when I saw his art and I saw that it didn't suck, like whether you like it or not, you can't see it. Like if somebody in your life did that, you would consider them one of the best artists you know. But when I saw that it didn't suck, like that's a moment of dissonance. And it, that's not good. Like you want to be honest. It's, it's when you realize people are being dishonest. And like, no, that didn't – like when I saw that people were essentially lying about Hitler's art sucking – 
it didn't make me like sympathize with Hitler. Oh, what else did they lie in about? If they were, if they lie about Hitler's art, what else did they lie about concerning Hitler? You know, I didn't go there with it, but I, it just did make me question kind of like our social mechanisms. And another memory of that I have, this would have been later on, but a big moment for me. I don't think I realized how big of a moment this was at the time, but when Bill Maher got canceled, literally canceled, you know, I don't, I don't use the phrase cancel culture. Obviously, a lot of what I talk about kind of parallels and rubs up against that, but I, I don't like that buzzword. I just call it censorship. And I want to make a distinction, too, between somebody just like losing a show or an opportunity versus an all-out campaign to censor them. Because there is a distinction there. Like, it's one thing if Disney fires an employee. I think that is a, that does become a form of censorship, like when Disney fired that actress for a political comment she made online. I do consider that a form of censorship. You know, it, you know, it fits into that whole category of compelled speech and everything. But there's a difference between that and like these all out blitzes where like multiple newspapers are trying to ruin somebody's life, where every single platform removes somebody. You know, I, I think there is a distinction to be made there. I mean, I think they're they're part of the same spectrum, but I do want to make I just don't like the phrase cancel culture. I don't like the buzzword for the same reason. I don't like the phrase woke. I try to find other ways, even though, even though I ultimately end up talking about those things, I, I guess I try to, I try to describe them. It goes back to description. It goes back to my friend, Nick, my, my old buddy, Nick, the writer who I just sent him this little fun short story years ago. And I've mentioned this before, but it was another moment for me. And I will get back to Bill Maher. We're not forgetting that moment that I haven't talked about yet, but you know, my buddy, Nick, I, I wrote this little short story just for fun, just for basically for him, you know, it was just, I was just, cause he would do the same. Like he's a writer and he sends me things to read. And so I was just like, I'll just write this. I feel like writing a little short story. And as part of the story, I referenced the fact that like some boys were playing a certain video game and I named the video game in the story. And what's funny is I remember like kind of feeling like it, it felt kind of cheap to do that. It's almost like saying the name of a brand in a story. You know, it's not very creative for one. So like I, let's say I, I, it was probably Goldeneye. It was a story about growing up in the 90s. I have no idea what it was even about. I think I was still drinking. I think I was just drinking and like, I'll be like, I'm going to write a short story and send it to my friend who likes, who likes to write. And uh, which can be a good exercise, you know, writing something just and sending it to one person or sending it to nobody. But as I was writing, like, I, I remember even kind of feeling like naming the video game was kind of, it just didn't feel right. And funny enough, like when I sent that to my friend, like his feedback was like, instead of <laughs> his feedback was like, instead of naming the video game, you should describe it. Like, don't say Goldeneye, describe what's going on in the game and don't, don't ever name it. And I was like, that's a really cool technique. That is a very cool technique. And as anybody who regularly listens to this show knows, I love description and I emphasize when you can describe something rather than name it or explain it, especially in the context of a story, there's something to that. I feel like it, it allows the imagination to go more places. And so that advice stuck with me, like the idea of like, you know, 
describe it, describe the game, don't just name the game. But anyway, back to Bill Maher, where this was a moment for me too, where just realizing, I mean, I guess that, you know, what, what launched into that was just, you know, I don't use phrases like cancel culture. I, I avoid it. Sometimes I will use it. Sometimes I'll use the phrase woke. I avoid it because those are obnoxious buzzwords that make people lazy. I've talked before about how buzzwords are cool because initially they're convenient and people understand what they mean. But over time, when people only use a buzzword or, or catchphrase and they stop actually describing the idea or elaborating, it loses its meaning because people start abusing it and using it for everything. We've seen this happen with all kinds of terms over the years. So even though like a buzzword, people want to use it initially because it's like, oh, somebody can't came up with a word for that thing that normally takes me a paragraph or, or an entire sentence to describe. And now there's a word for it. But then you start only using the word and the fact that you're no longer showing your work. You're no longer elaborating and actually describing what it is you're talking about. You become lazy. You start misusing the word or other people do. Like even if you still have a very specific use for that word and you know why you're using it, other people abuse it. Other people use it generally. And that's how I feel when I see people use the word woke or cancel culture. It's like those catchphrases made sense at a certain point because they kind of distilled uh, everything down to just one word that you could use to describe a phenomenon. But now people only use the words and I think it's worth sometimes describing. And so I try to do that on this show. Like rather than just use buzzwords and be like, people are doing this. I'd rather actually describe what I'm seeing. And I feel like that also gives you you're more likely to be balanced when you do that too. And and if people hear you and they go, oh, you're talking about cancel culture. Well, that's on them. And maybe they're right, but still like their mind does the math, but it's cool that their mind might not do that either. I mean, I've had that happen. Like I, on a really early episode, I talked about how like we have the, um, let me think about this for a sec. I don't, I want to remember exactly how I put it. It was one of the first every night's a school night episodes. I talked about how like we we often vilify people for not surviving as well as us. And I meant it, I meant it in a very general way. Like kind of almost I meant it I don't even know how I meant it. That was me many years ago. But just that was the idea is that we vilify people for not surviving as well as us. And it's hard not to do that or not surviving in the same way we do. And I remember this guy, he was kind of an acquaintance I had made in town here. And this was when I was way more open about the show. And when for that matter, it seems like people were more interested, more just random people would check it out. because And nobody was really doing podcasts. I mean, like nobody knew people. Not to make myself out to be like some, I wasn't one of the first podcasts and Obviously, this is this podcast never took off. It never gained popularity. But still, you know, at that point, like nobody knew somebody. Like today, everybody knows five people, ten people. I mean, some people probably know a hundred people, a thousand people who have a podcast. But in 2013, whenever that was, you know, it would have been 2013, I guess, when I started it. You know, you didn't know people who were doing podcasts. 
Like people were just starting to get into them, but you didn't know them. So some even just like random drinking friends in town would listen to it. And at that point, I hadn't become the pundit that I am today. So I was less likely to offend people, I guess. I mean, although, you know, really, like, I, I don't think I talked that differently. I think things were just less hysterical. But a local guy listened, and I remember him, he really identified with that idea of, like, we vilify people who don't survive as well. And I realized that he interpreted it completely differently. Like, he kind of took the perspective of, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, we we don't like homeless people. You know, I don't know exactly. It's, it's been a long time. It's been eight years or seven years or something since I had this conversation. But it was interesting to me because I realized that he had interpreted what I said completely differently than I meant it. But it was cool because I also was completely fine with it. Because sometimes when you're misinterpreted or someone like takes on, thinks you meant something else, especially when they take offense to it or they don't like it. I mean, that just, obviously that's going to rub you the wrong way, but it's interesting when someone really likes what you said, but they didn't understand it. And then it, it makes you question even how you meant it. And you realize, I guess I was speaking generally enough to where it's, I didn't really exclude that interpretation, but I think that's what you get from describing things. That's sometimes what you get by describing something rather than summing it all up with one word, especially when it's a very polarizing word in, you know, in this like political, socio-political dialogue. I think it's an effective tool to describe it. I mean, for arguments too, because it's like when you're arguing using buzzwords and these names, like, you know, describe what, you know, describe it show your work sometimes. I think it's better. And then it also, it allows people to interpret it in different ways. And somebody might interpret it in a good way that you didn't mean, but it kind of gives you more insight. But anyway, back to, back to Bill Maher. You know, this was an instance of literal cancel culture where on his, his old show after nine 11, he infamously got into an argument with one of his guests and his show was called politically incorrect. And I like Bill Maher. And I sometimes feel that I have to give a disclaimer when I say that because I don't agree with him. And I sometimes I find him really annoying. Sometimes I find him really arrogant. It, like saying I like Bill Maher, like I think Bill Maher is a net positive. It's kind of like what I was saying about Joe Rogan. Like do I sit there and like hang on every word Joe Rogan says when I listen to him? Because I mean there was a point in time like maybe like 2015 – where I listened to every single Joe Rogan episode, not because I loved Joe Rogan, just because I felt like he was doing a good service. It was a net positive. You were more likely to hear something interesting than you were not. And at this point, like I'll occasionally listen to a Joe Rogan episode and I'll tune out most of it. But overall, I think he, overall it's a net positive. I think he's a good person for the position that he's in. And that's how I feel about Bill Maher as well. You know, you know, Bill Maher had, Trump's felt derangement. And that's one of the pluses of Trump's felt being out of office is that people who I otherwise like who were completely sidetracked by Trump's felt, like people who were completely derailed by Trump's felt, they're now kind of getting back to normal. And I'm happy about that. I'm glad that they're no longer distracted by Trump's felt. And, you know, I didn't necessarily, I don't know, I felt that people. I don't expect people to like Trumpsville, of course, but 
you know, it, just the hysteria surrounding him, it, it was very difficult for me to take that seriously from people. And so someone like Bill Maher, like now that and I, don't, I don't have HBO, I don't watch Bill Maher, but occasionally like a clip will pop up somewhere of his show. And, you know, he's still fighting for free speech. He still makes a lot of points that I agree with. He's always made an effort to be honest. And that's what I like about him is I don't even find him that funny. But he's always made an effort to be honest. And so, you know, and that's what he was on Politically Incorrect, too. And his show was called Politically Incorrect. And, you know, political incorrect, what's politically correct and incorrect, it shifts. You know, our definition of that today, and that's not even a phrase that people use anymore. That used to be like the catchphrase before woke, what you used to hear people say all the time, like from the 90s to the through the early 2000s. When you heard conservatives and not even conservatives, but just anybody who believed in, you know, free speech and free expression, they would often talk about politically correct types. And what they were referring to were people on the left who were trying to enforce what people can say and not say. That's been going on a long time on the left. Even though neocons were pushing that even harder when they were in power, like even though neocons and evangelicals were the ones trying to get things banned from stores... There was a whole, I mean, the movement of political correctness on the left, that's been going on as long as I've been conscious, but it just, it, they didn't have as much cultural power. They actually were in, in the counterculture at the time. And as a result, like they had a lot more appeal. Uh, but, but anyway, you know, political correctness though, when you actually think about what it is, the actual phrase, because it's a great example of what I'm talking about where people use that phrase and they, they would use it all the time. And people who really hadn't thought through what they were saying would always say things like, oh, I, I hate political correctness. God, everything's so politically correct. And, and you know, now what people are saying, is, and they mean pretty much the same exact thing, is, oh, I hate, I hate this woke stuff. And I feel the same way about all that stuff, but I, I still see that as lazy. And when people used to say, oh, I hate political correctness, it's like, that's lazy. Like, sometimes it's worth describing what you mean. And you can see that, like, as people used the phrase political correctness more and more to describe what they didn't like, they stopped actually describing the phenomenon that they were talking about. And so you can see where it kind of lost meaning. But, it, you know, if you actually look at the phrase itself, you can see where it's kind of a, a, a shifting, it's kind of an amorphous phrase because... You know, political correctness would refer to anybody who's in power. And it's interesting in that I see cultural power as more, I see, I see cultural power as the dominant force in our society today more than political power. Because there are times, there are countries, you know, where political power informs the culture. But what we're seeing now in the last few years is where cultural power is informing political power, which is very interesting. I don't like it, but it's very interesting. But when you think about the definition or, or just that phrase, political correctness, it would refer to whoever is the dominant power. So there was a time where I think you could say political correctness was a conservative evan evangelical Christian. And that was reflected in the politics too. That was reflected in neocon politics. So even a phrase like that kind of shifts or it depends on who has the cultural power at the time. 
But Bill Maher's show is called Politically Incorrect, so he's always been committed to saying things that, you know, I mean, he he's he's the guy who people want to wash his mouth out with soap, but he's always been willing to go there. And after 9-11, you know, there was this mantra being repeated that the hijackers were cowards. And to me, that's the same thing as saying Hitler's art sucks. It's dishonest. Whether you like it or not, you don't have to like those guys. You shouldn't like them. But the idea that you have to qualify it, the idea that you have to slant everything. Like, those guys hijacked planes filled with civilians and crashed them into buildings, killing killing many people. We all know what happened on 9-11. Whether you believe in the conspiracies or not, it doesn't even really matter. We know what happened on 9-11. So you don't really need to say that they're cowards on top of that. You're overdoing it. You're posturing. You're signaling. But it was common to hear that. It was like, oh, those guys are cowards. And people will say that about killers. They'll, they'll say that about a lot of people. And I feel like they could find a better word. You're just a coward. I mean, I've seen that and I, I would never... Here's the thing. I would never tell the relative of a murder victim, what to say when they give their speech in court to the person who killed their loved one. I would never dream. It's kind of like with the kid, the parents who recreated their, their son who died in Parkland, they recreated him as AI so that he could do an anti-gun commercial. Like I would never tell them grieving parents, like what to say or do, you know, I, I have my own opinion about the idea of recreating your dead relative for a political commercial, but still, I would never tell a grieving person what to do or say, but it's, it's pretty common. I've seen it many times. I've watched many vid- court videos where the, the relative of a victim confronts the killer, and it's very common for them to say, you coward. And I understand what they mean. You know, that per- you hid in the darkness and you attacked a vulnerable person. It's not like you took somebody on in a fair fight even where somebody happened to die. It's like you stalked somebody and, you know, you you didn't even give them a chance. You know, that I understand that there is an element of cowardice to that. But I don't know that that's the right word. There's probably a better word. And so Bill Maher was kind of making the same point because somebody called the terrorists, the hijackers, cowards. And Bill Maher was like, you know, you can't call them cowards. I don't remember his exact quote. But he said, you can't call them cowards. It took balls to hijack planes and crash them into buildings. That's not an act of cowardice. You might not like it. It's horrible. It's absolute. Do I, do I even need to say that? Do I even need to, do I, do I need to tell you that's bad? Do I need to tell you Hitler's bad? We can describe what they did And if you can't figure out from that alone that that person's bad, you have a lot more work to do. And it'll it'll probably become evident. Like if somebody tells you like, oh, these guys hijacked planes full of civilians and crashed them into buildings and killed countless people. Like if you need somebody to tell you that's bad, you're probably doing other things in your life. You're probably doing a lot worse things than just not knowing that that's a bad thing. You're probably, you know, you probably have some antisocial tendencies and you're probably doing a lot worse than just not understanding the severity of 9-11 or Hitler. 
it's another form of what I often complain about is like the presumption that people are so stupid that you either need to censor stuff or you need to qualify everything and tell and tell people what to think. You need to you need to tell people the hijackers are cowards and bad people so that they know that those guys suck. Why don't you just say they suck? The hijackers in 9/11 sucked. They sucked. But Bill Maher made a good philosophical point, and that's all he was doing, is he was making a philosophical point by saying, you can call them a lot of things, but you can't call them cowards, and that got his show actually canceled, and that was a pivotal moment for me, that's why I'm bringing it up here. It was a pivotal moment because I realized, oh, people are dishonest, and when somebody confronts that dishonesty, or even just tries to make a counterpoint on a show that is based around counterpoint and that is called politically incorrect. So that's a good example of what I mean, though, of like the shifting definition of political correctness based on the time in which you live. Like at one point, it was politically incorrect to say you didn't believe in God or you believed in the separation of church and state. It was politically incorrect to say you didn't support war. Like that was politically correct at one point. And you can see that on Bill Maher's show. Because when Bill Maher's show was called politically incorrect, a lot of the controversial statements that he was making, like the 9-11 one, were politically incorrect because they were actually kind of left. And Bill Maher's always pushed back against the left, though he is definitely on the left. But uh, he... uh, you know, at that point in time, though, like saying things that are now mainstream, you know, having certain leftist views back then were actually countercultural and politically incorrect. And I think people who were around then can attest to that. And I have to keep that in mind that somebody who's even five years younger than me might only know the left wing to be the the more censorious however you say that the left is more prone to censorship and the i mean let's just stick with with the language i'm using here which is like someone who's even 5 years younger than me probably only remembers the left being the politically correct power in our society but when i was young when i was a kid there was a political correctness on the side of the right as well. And you can see that with Bill Maher getting his show canceled. And that was waning. Like, that was waning during my childhood. Like, political correctness, like when I was still a kid, was becoming more and more synonymous with the left. But it got this made, like, the right side of political correctness got this major boom after 9-11. Like the culture was moving left and then 9-11 caused this huge spike where suddenly the neocons had a lot more power and their power base included evangelicals. And so as a result, there was this sudden political correctness from a neocon perspective. Even though that had been waning over the years, it got this huge but temporary boost and then when people realized the neocons were extremely manipulative and just, I mean, I don't even, I think everybody knows that at this point. Hope, I mean, except for the fact that people put freaking like, I mean, 
The fact that somebody named Cheney has political power again, that blows my mind. I can't believe, not only that, like it'd be one thing if Liz Cheney was cool, but she's the worst of the worst. You know, she's uh, the perfect example of why I could never actually call myself a Republican, even if I lean right on some things. Even though a lot of my focus, a lot of my scrutiny is on the left for obvious reasons, Liz Cheney is a good example of why you can never be comfortable with the right either. Because the fact that she has any influence and power, it just blows my mind. It blows my mind that somebody named Cheney could actually have political power. But then it also blows my mind that somebody named Clinton could. And these are the dynasties. These are, these, these are the elites. These are the multi-generational, noble. You know, these, these are the people who run our, our world. You know, so it's not a surprise that their names come up again and again. But anyway, um, you know, Bill Maher, like I, I do, I respect his commitment. And that was an eye-opening moment for me because I realized, oh, you know, there's the climate of dishonesty can get so strong, you know, and it, it often is. And right now we're, we're in a time like that. And, and it's like simply making a reasonable philosophical point can get your show canceled. And that, that's what would happen back then. And now we're kind of seeing the inverse of that. We're like, I believe that nowadays you could make a 9-11 joke I believe that today you could even say the 9-11 hijackers weren't cowards and people would back you up. I don't believe I don't believe somebody would have their show canceled for saying that today. And that's a really interesting thing. I was talking to Miles about this the other day, how what's really interesting about the left is I know a lot of people on the left who are very outspoken activist types who joke about 9-11. Like they they share like 9-11 memes. You know, this event that wasn't that long ago where many people died. And I'm fine with that. Like, I obviously, I'm fine with people joking about 9-11. And I, the day 9-11 happened, I made a post on a message board joking about it. And people got really mad at me. I was 15 years old, but I, I joked about it. No, you know what? I th- no, I didn't even joke about it. I said something like, uh, we deserved it. Because I've, you know, it's funny, like the, th- the things that change about you, that, but the things that stay the same, because as far back as I can remember, I was always against the U.S. being involved in foreign conflicts that didn't directly require us. And even then, even being 15 years old, I, I on 9-11, I made some post on a message board I used and I said, you know, we deserve this. This is what happens when you mess around in the Middle East. Eventually, someone gets upset and retaliates. And people didn't like that. But I also remember feeling a certain pride when the country kind of unified around like fighting terrorism. Like, even though I didn't buy into it completely, I do remember kind of taking in that feeling and knowing that that's a special feeling. Like, you can't really avoid feeling that sometimes just when you know that everybody's kind of on the same page because. Even though I was willing to joke about 9-11 and say that the U.S. kind of had it coming, I also wanted the people who did it to get caught. Like, I also wanted bin Laden 
you know, I also wanted us to get him. You know, so it wasn't like I was like, oh, just let him go. Just let Bin Laden go. I didn't I didn't feel that way about it either. But it's interesting, like, like you know, the conversation with Miles where I was saying, you know, it's like it's amazing that all these people who joke about 9-11 in turn ask you to be solemn and, and super serious about whatever tragedies they care about. Even ones that don't personally affect them. Like, I'm not talking about something that personally affected a person. But, I mean, I dated someone like this who would joke, like, she would joke about 9-11, which was fine. Like, I was, it wasn't like I was sitting there like, oh, my God, I don't even know you. I thought I knew you. You're joking about 9-11? I don't even know you. You know, it's not like I felt that way about it. I probably thought it was funny. But it was interesting because she would act like she was in church when a tragedy would happen that was relevant to her political interests. And that was as politics were getting more and more severe, when I started to notice that they were influencing every relationship. But it it is kind of strange to me that people are willing to joke about this mass tragedy. They're willing to share memes about it and joke about it with their friends. But God forbid you talk about their tragedy, which isn't even theirs, but for some reason they identify with it, like a shooting or something. Like That's a great example, actually, where a shooting, like a, like a mass shooting happens. I can't remember ever joking about a mass shooting, but still, if you're flipping about it or you don't think it's, if you don't immediately jump on the gun control train, people are like, how dare you? People are dying. And it's like, you post 9-11 memes. You joke about a mass tragedy, much bigger than a shooting. I don't know. But Bill Maher, like like the fact that Bill Maher got in trouble for saying these guys weren't cowards, which I agree with. You know, I agree that cowardice isn't the right word. A lot of other expletives and insults and criticisms, (laughs) judgments are relevant. Call them bad guys if you need to, or just call them what they are, the type of person who would crash a plane full of people into a building filled with more people. That kind of sounds like a worse insult than anything else you could come up with. That sounds like a worse insult than coward. And sometimes, like, if somebody's ever described to you something that you did, sometimes hearing it, like, described back to you, it gets into your, it gets, it hits you way deeper than if they just called you a name. Like if you've had a significant other, like address a problem with you and they actually break it down, that hits you way deeper than if they just called you an asshole. But sometimes you just want to call someone an asshole and I get that. And sometimes you just want to call 9-11 hijackers cowards. But that conversation I mean, that should have been a conversation where they went back and forth and people were like, Bill Maher made an interesting philosophical point that the type of person who has it in them to to commit suicide, crash a plane, hijack a plane and crash it, you know, that's not exactly cowardice. Just a, a few random points here tonight. We covered Danzig, Hitler, Bill Maher, Tony Hawk. Just talking about all the big names, the whole, the pantheon, all my heroes. No, (laughs) 
Here's what I'll say. I'll say that Tony Hawk is as much my hero as Hitler is. Neither one's my hero. Bill Maher isn't either. You know, I, I honestly, I don't even really have heroes. Like, even as much admiration as I have for Danzig, I never saw him as a hero. And I think that kind of plays into my view of artists. I think that's one of the reasons why I can deal with an artist having a personality or having viewpoints that I don't agree with. Because even if I put them on a creative pedestal or I consider them cool, I avoid hero worship. And I I feel like, I don't know, the only hero worship I really remember in my life was athletes. You know, being a kid and like watching football and like, you know, I was into basketball for a while as a kid and because that was kind of the height of the NBA. I mean, I know there's still a lot of people who watch it, but, you know, just the period when Michael Jordan was playing, you know, there was just something special about that era of the NBA. Maybe it was just because I was a kid at the time. But I remember hero worshiping football players, like really, you know, seeing them as something larger than life. But as I got older, that just kind of went away. But I don't know that I've ever really worshipped musicians as people. As I don't know that I've ever made them out to be gods. Like, obviously, there's a pantheon. Obviously, some musicians have a statue in my pantheon. But I guess I've never really put them in a position where they can disappoint me. And so I would never really consider Danzig a hero. He's just somebody that I admire what he was able to do, what he's still able to do. You know, it's kind of like my friends I was talking about how no matter how deep they got into the skateboarding underground, they still had a lot of respect for Tony Hawk. It's kind of like that too, where it's like there's certain people where you just kind of, you admire what they contributed, even if you don't worship them individually, even if they weren't even an influence on you, you know, it's just, it's that sort of thing. But I think like one of the ways to do that is to not put people on too high of a pedestal to begin with. Because people will do that with women, they'll do it with men. But that's like the sort of nice guy syndrome that I don't even know that people talk about anymore. But the whole nice guy syndrome was like the idea of the guy who puts a woman on a pedestal. And then when she does something that hurts his ego, he completely destroys her. It's like the guy who tells a girl, like, you're beautiful. And then when she rejects him, it's like, you were ugly anyway. You was, I, I really thought you were ugly. You know, it's like a lot of that comes from putting someone on a pedestal and then when they disappoint you in some insane way, you feel like you have to say something about it. And that, you know, speaking of Joe Rogan too, I'm just, I'm talking about all the big names here. But with Joe Rogan, like, for whatever reason, like, I read comments to his show I don't do that with very many things, but I I think because his show is so popular, it's very interesting for me to see what fans, quote unquote fans of a very large podcast have to say. And a lot of it's negative, but they're also, they're fans of him and they listen to every episode. And it's weird. Like you really see how entitled people are where I've noticed like when he, when, if he talks about something a lot, people hate him for it. And, you know, he talks about MMA and stuff, and I have zero interest in MMA. I've tried. I mean, I wouldn't even say I've tried, but I've, I've taken a glance at it. I was never into boxing. I, I was in, I'm still into pro wrestling. 
but I'm just not into MMA. I'm not that into fighting. I'm not that into watching people fight. I like a I like games. I like strategy games like football. I just I don't really care that much about fighting and I care even less to hear people discuss MMA. And you you'll be listening to a Joe Rogan episode with somebody and they're having an otherwise interest conversation that's interesting to me. And then like that person reveals that they're an MMA fan. And then that leads Joe Rogan to go. I mean, he's, it's, his, it's a big part of his life is MMA. Of course, it's going to come up a lot. He has MMA fighters on his show, but they'll go down the MMA rabbit hole and that could go on for 10 minutes or it could go on the rest of the show. And it always sucks for me as a listener, because at that point, it's like I, I just immediately tune it out or stop it. But I don't get mad. I understand that this guy is an MMA announcer who has a background in martial arts. He's deeply connected to MMA. Even people on his show who are just random people, they might also be MMA fans. And it's just like me talking about football. Like if I actually escaped my narcissism and included guests on this show, if they liked football, we would talk about football. I would go on about it. So I completely understand that there are just certain things that you're not going to be interested in. I'm sure, I mean, if you're not a fan of of the Misfits and Danzig, like these episodes where I've gone on at length about them recently, you're probably like, this sucks. This sucks. But I, with Joe Rogan fans, it's interesting because like you can see where these people are are so stuck in their own heads and they're so entitled to this new world of content that they'll like rail against him. They're like, Oh, I can't believe he's talking about MMA again. How dare you? You see where they're, they sound unhinged and they'll do it about like, you'll see things too, where they're like, Oh, he had another comedian. Oh, great. He's having another comedian on and they're going to talk about comedy. Oh, great. They're going to talk about comedy again. And it's like, these are professional comedians. You're listening to a show by a professional comedian who often has professional comedians on as guests. Some of what they're going to talk about is going to be the history of comedy, their favorite comedians, their techniques. It's their world. And yet you're upset about it because you choose to listen to this guy who does like multiple two, three hour episodes. Like this guy does like eight or nine hours of episodes in a given week or eight or nine hours of uh, you know, video of a podcast whatever it is, radio. You're listening to this guy probably more than you listen to your friends every week. And if you talk to your friends, I mean, I can tell you from like like the friends that I talk to the most, we repeat each other, we, we repeat ourselves constantly. We have the same conversation many times. <laughs> Sometimes I say, you already told me this. Sometimes I just let them go. Sometimes they do the same for me. It's just part of talking. It's listen to how much I repeat myself on this show, you know, but it's just, it's interesting to see like how people respond to a show like that. I, I find it just sociologically, psychologically interesting. The fact that people seem to take it personally when someone talks about something that they aren't personally interested in themselves and they especially do it when they don't agree. You know, like when someone says something that, they don't agree with like they they expect this to be addressed it's like this is a major problem guys oh my god this person they don't think you should get the vaccine this is a major problem i'm surprised that's as big of a problem as it is to be honest 
I'm surprised people are as cutthroat about the vaccine as they are. As I've talked about before, I got it. I feel no investment in it. The last thing I want to do is tell someone, get it. You should really get it. Everybody knows the, it's, it's kind of like, to me, that's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like pointing out that Hitler was a bad guy or calling the hijackers cowards. Everyone already knows what happened. Everybody already knows what it is. Like the people, you know, probably have already heard all of the arguments about vaccines And by you trying to force them to get it, especially if you're mean about it, which people are, my friend and his girlfriend broke up partially over that. Like, I'm sure that was just the straw that broke the camel's back, but he didn't want to get it. Or he's, I don't even know that he, see, the thing is, I don't even know that he's outright refusing to get it. He's just kind of taking a wait and see approach, which was originally my approach. But when I had to go to the doctor for something else, they offered it. And I said, I might as well, might as well just do it. If I turn into a mutant. If my mind goes blank, well, there you go. It's been a good life. It was nice being an individual while I could be one. But it's just like my friend, I don't even think he's as hardline about it. But the thing is, you become hardline about it. And if I said the things I just said about vaccines without saying that I also got it, people would just assume that I didn't get it and that I'm, a, I'm an anti-vacker. An anti-vaxxer. Do you mean vaxxer? No, I would never say vaxxer. A vacker. No, someone would assume I'm an anti-vacker. Because I said, I don't think people should be forced to get it. I don't think people should ruin relationships over it. I don't think they should bully people. I don't think they should call people stupid. I don't think they should wish death upon them because I've seen that. I've seen people say, well, if you don't get it, you deserve to die. Really? If you don't get it, you deserve to cry. Well, that's more reasonable. If you don't get the vaccine, you deserve to cry. (laughs) Cue Roy Orbison crying. I didn't get the vaccine and now it's like my life is just, I'm living in a Roy Orbison song. That's what people want though. They want to ostracize, if you don't get it, they want to ostracize you, make you out to be a murderous piece of shit. And they don't understand that, you know, bullying someone just plays, like if somebody is an anti-vacker and you're mean to them about it or coercive, if you're coercive about it, they're just going to be like, oh, you're one of them. You're part of it. You're, you're one of the reasons I don't want to get it. And someone would say that, like, even me being a vacker, I'm a vacker, guys. Even me being a vacker, the fact that I'm saying people shouldn't have to get it or they shouldn't be treated as mistreated for their decision to not get it. Someone would say that's irresponsible. Well, it's not irresponsible because I'm not responsible for anybody else. But we've gotten into this mindset where we think that we are. 
Like I've mentioned the, the fact that some people took selfies in masks to try to convince other people to wear masks. You don't have to do that. People already know the arguments. Oh, dude, because my friend, because my random friend on Facebook posted a picture of himself wearing his mask, I, I think that I'm, dude, I, you sold me. Oh, you, you posted a profile picture of yourself in a Mac. Oh, you posted a, a photo with like a little frame that says I got vaxxed. Vaxxed. I'm sold. I don't think so. And the sort of person who's going to be sold by that, well, you could sell that person a lot. I got something to sell that person. And it's not a bridge. It's nothing. You could sell that person nothing. The sort of person who sees that somebody like posted a, a masked profile picture or they used the little vaccination frame on Facebook. If somebody's convinced by that, like you could truly sell that person thin air. Say, I got some air for you. I bottled some mountain air. And if you breathe just a little bit every morning, it opens up your lungs, opens up your mind. You could sell them that. But the idea, like, I don't, I'm not even worried about that person. I couldn't care less about that person. I don't care about someone who's easily influenced by their friends or their peer group. It's the person who thinks it's an, that they need to serve as this little politician. It's what I've referred to as little politicians. People who think that like they need to go out there and be like, see, I'm wearing a mask. You should wear a mask. Wear a fucking mask. It's not your responsibility. Therefore, it's not irresponsible of me or any, you know, this is me arguing with phantoms. Nobody's confronted me. But I know that if I were to be outspoken about this, I know that it, if, even if this came up in a conversation with certain people I know, they might try to shame me even though I'm a vacker, even though I got the vac. They might try to shame you for saying you don't think people need to get it or have to get it. But I didn't really expect it to be as hard line as it is. I didn't expect to, I didn't expect people to be so angry. And then, I mean, you see a lot of hypocrisy too, where there were a lot, when, when Trumpsfeld said, we're going to have the vaccine by April, which they did. You know, I, and I know Joe Obama, Ben Biden took credit for it. But my understanding is that all of that was in motion earlier. And Trumpsfeld ended up being right about that, but you can't give him credit, apparently. Not the, I mean, it's not that I even feel the need to. Oh, Trumpsfeld was right, you know? It's like, sure, you know? But the fact that everyone said he was wrong is what I'm pointing out here. People didn't trust him. Because I, I remember I watched one of those debates where Trumpsfeld said, like, I think we can have the vaccine pretty early. I think he, I don't remember the date he said, but... Sure enough, around that time, they started to roll it out. And at that time, like a lot of leftists were like, that's bullshit. There were even some leftists who were kind of anti-vaccine when it was being done under Trumpsfeld's name. But guess what? People are hypocritical. And I, and I said after the election that I'm going to make it a point 
not to just point out all the hypocrisies in politics. Because to me, that's a cheap argument. You said this and now you're doing this. Oh, you were skeptical of vaccines when you didn't like the president. And now that there's a different president, you, you're you like trying to force people to get vaccines. You know, it's easy to see that hypocrisy because it's everywhere. And I, I think it's kind of a cheap argument to rely on that. I feel like I'm not making my points well enough if I rely on pointing out hypocrisy, unless it's immediately relevant. But yeah, all is voyeurism. You know, I've talked about that quote from the Bible, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. One of my favorite quotes from the Bible all is vanity, but I would say all is voyeurism describes the state of things today. You know, Edward Snowden wrote an article, the the famous whistleblower, what was he, he, he was an, was he a referee? Close, he was a government employee, but Edward Snowden wrote an article about how Apple, and I, I don't own a single Apple product, not deliberately, I just never got hooked, but how Apple is is unrolling some new system where it analyzes your photos, like any photos or any material that you put on the cloud. It it's going to have some sort of automatic analysis that flags it. If it's, uh, I mean, basically, you can see where this is going to be easily manipulated. And it's going to be flagged based on, uh, you can only imagine what their system is going to be like. I can only guess how this is going to be used. But Edward Snowden, you know, the guy who blew that, that whistle loudly about government surveillance, the NSA, he seems very concerned about this. But, you know, I, like I was saying about Google, it's like I also feel like that ship has sailed for me. Like the ship of, of surveillance has sailed. Like you never hear people worry about surveillance anymore. That was a huge talking point for years. It's It's gone the way of seatbelt laws. You know, when I, when I read my biological grandfather's newspaper editorials, you know, he was a libertarian, rallying, rallying against seatbelt laws. I was like, yeah, you never hear people talk about that, even though that should still be relevant. It's very similar to mask laws. You never hear conservatives talk about seatbelt laws anymore. They lost that battle. They've moved on. Everybody just wears a seatbelt unless you want to get a ticket. I still don't even understand how a cop can tell. I guess if they pull you over for something else and they see that you're not wearing a seatbelt, seems kind of hard to enforce seatbelt laws, though. I guess cops know what to look for, though. If you spend all day looking for seatbelts, you're going to notice, you know, you're going to be able to see better, I guess. But conservatives lost the seatbelt conversation, and I don't even remember it happening at all in my lifetime. I never remember seatbelt laws being argued or discussed in my lifetime. So that battle was lost a long time ago. And those editorials that my biological grandfather wrote, I, I want to say they're from the 70s. 
So it seemed to have been a more pressing topic in the 70s, maybe whenever seatbelt laws got enforced. And you can see where mass surveillance has gone in the same direction. Like that was a very big argument. And it wasn't, and that was, there was a lot of political common ground when it came to surveillance. People on the right hated it because it meant a larger federal government spying on you. You know, while neocons, I mean, that's, that's the distinction too between like neocons and neoliberals. They both favor all of these authoritarian practices. But people who are traditional conservatives naturally hated the idea of government surveillance. But so did a lot of people on the left. So did most of the left, from what I remember, is uh, people really didn't like the idea of even just traffic cameras, just the idea that cameras are everywhere. And people used to regularly talk about it, like, and the idea of the government, uh, you know, reading your emails. But people don't even talk about that stuff much anymore, even though someone like Edward Snowden came out and revealed that they're doing that. All those things that people were worried about, everything that, that people were worried about with the Patriot Act came to be. But we've just accepted that it's the reality now. We know that when we go out, we're being seen constantly. I mean, I was talking about how that Australian news show showed elevator footage of that guy who left his house after he had been diagnosed with COVID, coronavirus. I hear in Australia they call it Vi Caroni. It's like I Carumba. Vi Caroni. But that's a good example where it's like we live in a world where. I mean, like, how did they even get a hold of that? Did law enforcement give that to the news? How did the news in Australia even legally get a hold of you know, uh, camera footage from an apartment's um, elevator. Like, that's insane. Because at least, like, with surveillance, like, we, we have this idea that, oh, well, the only people who have access to these cameras are people who have to. It's on a need-to-know basis unless there's a crime and the evidence is turned over to the police who can choose to release it. Like, if somebody commits a crime and they're not caught... They release the footage to show that person, you know, wanted. Or if there's a court case, you know, it's the police are given access. Prosecutors are given access. But the idea of just releasing surveillance footage of a man who, who left his house with coronavi and sharing that publicly, it just shows you. I mean, Australia is Australia, but the U.S. is similar, if not worse, in some ways. And then the worst part about it at all, and I think this is the bigger reason, it's not just that we accepted the government is spying on us. It's not just that we accepted that every single business, every, you're being filmed constantly. It's not only that, it's that we are doing it to each other. I think that was really what normalized it. I think that is what changed the conversation or killed the conversation is the fact that we ourselves, the people now, are just constantly filming each other with their phones, taking photos of people to humiliate each other. 
I've taken photos of strangers before. Like I, I've, I've told the story on here before. Like when, when I got my first digital camera, my friends and I, we were teenagers and we would go out and we would pretend to like, like be taking pictures of other things, but I would take pictures of weird people or like that was when the mullet craze was big. So I would take pictures of guys with mullets. It's not very cool. I even did that later. I, I, I've even taken pictures of strangers later on, like the the old man at the puppy parade. My friend invited me to go to this puppy parade and there was this old man by himself there. He had that kind of Fred Mertz body shape with his pants pulled all the way up past his belly button and he was ancient, had a big gut. And he was in a, a, a Scarface, a black Scarface button-up shirt with a collar and it had the, the movie Scarface. It had the logo on the breast and on, on the back, it was like a big picture of Tony Montana. And he was just this, this guy must have been in his 80s. And I don't even know if he knew what Scarface was. But it's kind of like the other day I saw a homeless guy who was pretty much your stereotypical, like classic homeless guy, like white hair, facial hair. Like he looked like a hobo. Like, and I, and I mean that he, he, he had that kind of like, <laughs> like we're, we're in an age now when there's, where there's like classic homelessness. There's classic era homelessness, like where he looks like the kinds of homeless guys I used to see in Seattle growing up. He just looks that way. Like most homeless guys had a certain look. He looked like that, except he was in a corn follow the leader shirt. Or no, not, no, he wasn't in a corn follow the leader shirt. He was in a corn issues shirt. And corn, I was never a corn fan. Like I, I did like some shitty new metal for a while, but I never got into corn. But I remember that Issues album coming out because they, it was like some sort of contest where fans were, it was like, it was one of those things where like they asked fans to submit drawings for a contest and the winner would have their art on the cover. And someone drew a rag doll and Korn used that for the cover. So this guy had that shirt. It was, he obviously got it for free or at a thrift store. And that's the funny thing is like, it's like, I've, I've talked before about how you'll see old men wearing FUBU and they obviously got it at, at the thrift store. Like you can go to the thrift store and buy a full FUBU outfit now. And an old man who's just buying clothes, especially a guy who doesn't have much money, he's just going to see FUBU and buy it. He doesn't know what that is. He doesn't know that that FUBU out, he doesn't know that the FUBU shirt that he's wearing belonged to some wigger 20 years ago. And it's like the same thing with this this homeless guy I saw this old homeless guy wearing a corn issues shirt but i imagine that was sort of the case with this guy i saw at the puppy parade who was wearing this scarface button-up tucked in and he wasn't homeless or anything but it's like it was difficult for me for me to imagine that this guy at his age at the puppy parade was such a scarface fan that he wants to wear this shirt around maybe i've certainly come across stranger things but anyway point being I asked my friend to kind of stand. I was like, hey, can you kind of stand there? And like, she kind of stood near him. And then I kind of moved my camera just slightly so that I captured him. I captured him from the front and I captured him from, from the back. And I ended up posting it on my Instagram. And my Instagram's private. I can justify it all I want. The reality is I took a picture of a stranger without his permission and I posted it on a, a social media account because I, I wasn't even making fun of him. And I, and my whole, the whole thing was, I was like, that's me. That's going to be me. An old guy by himself at the puppy parade wearing a Scarface button up shirt. But anyway, like, so I'm guilty of it too. And so I'm not on some high horse here. 
but I don't, I'm not the kind of person who would just whip out my phone if somebody's doing something I don't like and record them. And I, I haven't forgotten the hysteria. I mean, it's still going on, but I have not forgotten the hysteria where I saw this footage last year where this guy had gone into Walmart or Target or somewhere like that, and he didn't wear a mask. And these two women bookended him. He was in an aisle, and one woman was standing, and they, these, these women weren't even together. They were separate women who just joined forces to try to humiliate this man and attack this man, accost him. And they, they each had their phones out, and they were both live-streaming this man for not wearing a mask, trying to shame him. And he was just like, you guys are crazy. You guys are fucking crazy. He was this older guy. And he's, and he's, it's true. Like when you see these two women, just like we're filming you and broadcasting it to the world. We're, we're shaming you to the entire world. And it's like, who looks bad in this? Even if that guy is spreading coronavi, do you not realize what you are doing? Do you not know what the hell you're doing? Because they don't. It's it's collective psychosis, and people are psychos. They're not stupid. I won't call people stupid, but I'll call them psychos. That's my go-to word right now. And that's just everything now. Everything now. You never know who's going to whip out a phone and just start recording you to try to make you look bad. And not just to record you for, as evidence. Because I can understand that. Like, I understand with the George Floyd death how I understand why somebody recorded that. Whether you think that the cop killed him or not, I understand why somebody would record an incident like that. And that's crossed my mind too. Like, you know, there have been a couple times where like I've noticed, like I've been out for a walk at night, minding my own business as always, and I've had cops kind of circle the block before. I don't really worry about it, but it has crossed my mind where I'm like, if he pulls over and tries to talk to me, I might just hit record on my phone, like without him even knowing it. Like, I'm not going to hold my phone up. Because, like, if a cop starts talking to you and you immediately hold your phone up in his face, you're just asking for trouble. I mean, like, I have no problem with a cop talking to me. It's what he does from there that I might have issues with. But I might hit record and just hold my phone by my side or angle it. I might tactfully record the encounter. So, I mean, there's a function. I mean, you can hold people accountable you know, it's not like it's all good or all bad. I mean, the good thing about living in a society where everybody has the ability and the means to record each other is that people can get caught doing horrible things they might not otherwise have been held accountable for. The other side is we turn it into a, a public pillory and we share it online without their consent. Like I did taking pictures of the Scarface old man, the old Scarface man. Um, but I do believe that like as we've started doing that more with very little resistance, very little resistance to people doing that, it's actually surprising how passive people are when they're being recorded. Like I've seen the videos of, of, you know, at political protests where activists will grab phones and even attack people for filming them. But just it, it amazes me there, there are so many incidents of people just whipping out their phone and recording someone without their consent with the intention of sharing it and shaming or humiliating them or ruining their life or whatever else. 
And it amazes me that more people don't get punched, really. But they also know that it's going to be caught on camera. So, you know, they know that they're going to get held accountable for it. But as we've gotten more comfortable, not just with doing that to each other, but also being on the receiving end or the potential receiving end, we've kind of given up worrying about whether the government's going to do it or not, because the people, it turns out, are just as capable. Because all is voyeurism now. All is voyeurism. And not having looked at, at my main social media accounts, like I, I have like a, I don't even need to say what I have. Like I, I have, I paid a little bit of attention to what's going on in the news. Like I do have a social media account for that, but it's totally unconnected to any of my personal accounts. But I haven't been look, I haven't looked at any of my personal social media accounts for a month. Not because I'm taking a deliberate break. I just got busy and kind of out of the habit of it, and I'm kind of enjoying not looking at it right now. I kind of like having a little more psychic clarity, although it does make you feel a little more isolated. Social media, as you know, it's like people are always like, you know, that's not real. You're not making real connections. Well, you are. You are really connecting with people if you use it honestly. If you're using social media honestly, it's no different than talking to anybody about anything. It's not the same as being with somebody, but it's funny that people like feel they have to remind people and emphasize that. It's like, you know that that's not actual, real, physical, human contact. Yeah, I know. Just like I know that talking to somebody on the phone isn't real, physical, human contact. But anyway, not having looked at it, you know, I, so I have no idea like what's going on in people's lives or anything like that. And I have to kind of remind myself though, like even though I'm, I'm far from a social media or addict, it's interesting that nobody, unless you've spoken to me in the last month, you actually have no idea what I'm up to. I, I, and it's not that, not that you would know exactly what I'm up to from my social media posts, but it's still that sort of thing where it's like, I, I, I was thinking yesterday, I was like, oh yeah, nobody has a window into my life right now. Unless you message, email me or call me, nobody I know has a window into anything. They don't know how I'm expressing myself or anything, you know? And I have to remind myself of that because you get so used to the fact that you're being viewed in some way. In our society today, you get so used to the, the fact that you're continually, if you, if you use social media or it's like you're giving people a window into your mind, into your life, some, it might not be the whole of your life, hopefully it's not, but you're giving people a little glimpse and it's interesting when you don't do that. Because all is voyeurism. But going back to that Marshall McLuhan idea that I've mentioned many times, it's, there's a power in that too. In a society where all is voyeurism, not making yourself visible, not participating in the public spectacle, gives you immense power. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave 
this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. So take.